Good morning. Glad to see you here today, and I want to talk with you a little bit about the history of the church. We're on part number four of our six-part series, so we've been moving right on through this. We're finally going to start getting to the part that you know a little bit about. We're going to talk about some things that you've heard of. We covered the persecuted Christianity, the church as it was persecuted in the first several hundred years of its existence. And then we talked about the time of imperial Christianity, where the Roman pontiff, the guy who was head of the Roman church, uh, or the head of the Roman government, took over the church. Constantine, he was converted, and, and the Roman ruler ran the church for many, many years. And then we covered the period of time that we call Christendom. It was where the Roman church began the Holy Roman Empire and the influence and power of this Roman church began to grow and grow and grow and grow until ultimately it had absolute power and gripped the world, the known world, the civilized world at that time in what we call the Dark Ages. For a long, long time. What we're going to talk about today is the restored church, reformed Christianity. You know, in 1517, where we begin this, it begins with this guy, I call him an angry German monk. I've heard people refer to him that way before. He was a German priest, and he was very, very angry about some of the things that were going on in the church at the time, chief most of that was the sale of indulgences that we talked about a little bit last time, really upset him. And he did something that began a spark of flame that really radically changed the face of Christianity. And it directly impacts you and I. The Reformation, as it's known, was very influential on the world that we have today. Without the Reformation, there would have been no American Constitution. Without the Reformation, you would not have the freedom of religion that you have today. Without the Reformation, you wouldn't have the freedom to believe what you believe the Scriptures believe without somebody persecuting you for not believing what they told you to believe. So much of our world today has been directly impacted by the chain of events that began with this. And there are four great religious questions that the Reformation dealt with. And this is, for spiritual significance, important to you and I. The number one question they dealt with was, how is a person saved? You and I would have an answer to that, wouldn't we? We talk about the plan of salvation and we talk about the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you and He came. And we talk about what God's required us to do. Up to this point though, for the last thousand years, the answer to this question was, you're saved by Jesus, you're saved by doing good works of penance, and then you're saved by going to purgatory for however long you have to go to pay for your sins. And so the answer to this was very different answer than you would get today in this church or in most churches here in the town of Denton today. Another question that was asked and answered differently through this Reformation was what or who is final authority in religious matters? Up to this point for the last thousand years, the final authority was not the Bible. In fact... The Catholic Church had done a really good job of keeping the Bible out of people's hands. It was against the law for most people to own Bibles. Even if you could get hold of one, you probably couldn't read it. And even if you could read, the Bible was in Latin, and you didn't read Latin. So it was very, very difficult for anyone to have access to a Bible. But they all got to hear what the Pope had to say. And the final authority in all religious matters for the last thousand years had been the Pope. Another question that was redefined or rediscussed and the belief systems began to change is the church. If I were to ask you what's the church, I know what your answer would be probably. You'd say, well, that's saved people, right? 
Because that's what the Bible says the church is, is save people. But for the last thousand years, their answer to what is the church was the church is a religious, political, governing organization. And most people were not members of the church. Only the clergy were the church. And the clergy, the church, was an organization that stood between people and God. That's what the church was for the past thousand years. But they're going to get a different answer to this. The last question was, what is the Christian life? Now, we talked about this some last time. Remember the word sacerdotalism? Great big word. And the idea was that the only way you got grace was through a sacrament. And there was a list of seven sacraments. One of them was marriage, and one of them was communion, one of them was baptism. And the church gave you those things... The church as the organization of God, the government of God on this earth, gave common people those things as God's grace to those people. That was your access to grace. And so their answer to this question was, as far as what's a Christian life, it's what's your relationship with the priest? What's your relationship with the church? It didn't have anything to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ. It had to do with your relationship with the priest or the church. Now, to give you just a little bit of background, we've got this guy here named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe lived in the 1300s, and he was a professor at Oxford in England. And John Wycliffe was a religious professor. He was an ordained man, and he... He began to study or read his Bible, and he came to the conclusion, the radical conclusion, that people ought to be able to read the Bible in their own language. Now, can you imagine, today, if you were to go down to Mardell's, there are probably 50 different translations. On my phone over there, I've got an app called YouVersion, which has over a thousand different translations of the Bible in lots and lots of different languages. At this time, it was only in Latin. That was it. And Latin was only the language of the church. Common people didn't speak it anywhere. So he had this radical, crazy idea that I'm going to translate the Bible into English so people in England can read the Word of God in their own language. He completed the New Testament in 1380, the Old Testament in 1382. He said everyone should have a Bible in their own language. You don't need a priest to understand the Word of God. They fired him from Oxford for this. He was run out of town. Oxford was a religious university at the time. He was fired, run away from Oxford for this. He died before the Catholic Church could get to him and kill him. So you know what they did? They went and dug up his body and burned his dead body and then took the ashes and poured them in the Thames River. They were so upset that he would take the Word of God and put it in what they call the vulgar language of the people. There was a guy that he had some influence on. He did, he did a lot of writing, Wycliffe did. And a fellow who got hold of some of his writings was a Bohemian named John Huss. And John Huss was a professor. He was a priest. He was involved in a, in a, in a university in Bohemia, which is what we call Czechoslovakia. And he began to teach a lot of the things that John Wycliffe taught. And he had a lot of influence with students. And the students, he was very popular, and lots of students began to follow him and began to to, uh, listen to the things he said. And the Pope gets word of what's going on. There's a big problem at this university. The students begin to riot and they send in the military to, to do martial law, to enforce martial law and shut this down. And they call this guy before the uh, council. They issue what's called a papal bull, which meant you have 60 days to recant the things that you've been saying. So they call him. He comes. Uh, the guy who is uh, the head of the Roman church at the time, the Roman 
uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, guarantees him safe passage to and from this meeting with the Pope. So he comes and they have all these bishops and cardinals and people there in the Pope. And he stands and he talks to them about what he believes, which is the same thing that John Wycliffe did. They arrested him, told him he had to recant everything that he'd said. He had to recant his writings. He refused. So they proceed to pronounce a sentence of death against him. Now, remember the Holy Roman Emperor has said he can go free and he can be safe. But they talked to the Roman Emperor, the Roman Pope did, and he told him, you know, this guy's a heretic and promises to a heretic are invalid. You don't have to keep promises you make to a heretic. So they burned this guy to death in the 1400s, 1412. And when they did, his last name, Hus, it means goose. That's what the word means. And what he said to them was this, you may cook this Hus or cook this goose, but after me will come those who you will not stand against. And so he gave his life for believing and teaching that people had a right to read the Bible. Something happened that uh, changed the world then. A guy by the name of Gutenberg developed his Gutenberg printing press. You know, they say, people who study history and all, they say that this was the most important development of the last thousand years was the printing press. What it allowed people to do was no longer did you have to have tribes of monks handwriting things, but if you wanted a document, you could print it and print copy after copy after copy after copy of it. You know what one of his first jobs was? Printing indulgences for the church, for the Catholic church. That's one of his first jobs that he did with this new printing press. The first thing that, as a book that he printed, though, was a Bible. It's called the Gutenberg Bible or the 42-line Bible because every page had 42 lines on it. And he printed that... And about 180 copies of it he printed, and 48 of them still exist today. That was 1450. The reason that's so important is because John Wycliffe, his writings, there were a few copies, but not many. What John Huss wrote, you could get copies of it in the university in Bohemia where he worked. But outside of that, you just there weren't many copies of it. But this opens the door for a couple of guys to come on the scene. And those guys, the things that they write, can be spread throughout all of Europe. The first one of these guys is a guy named Erasmus. And Erasmus was a scholar. He wasn't really a religious... I mean, he was a religious man, but he was primarily a scholar. And he studied the Greek and Hebrew texts... And he went and gathered all the manuscripts that he could gather, and he put together a Greek and Hebrew text and a Latin text of the Bible. And he published those. And they printed them, and they let these things go out. Now, Erasmus came along just right before Martin Luther. Martin Luther started during the lifetime of Erasmus. And Martin Luther, once the Rev... Uh, the Reformation begins and gets going, expects that Erasmus will join in with him, and Erasmus doesn't do it. Erasmus tells Martin Luther, he says, the problem you've got is you want me to throw away the church, the Catholic church, and come to your church, and you say everyone needs to read the Bible, except they have to understand it the way you understand it, or they're all heretics. And he said, I'm not... That's no different than what we've got. It's just a different leader. And he said, I don't want that. Another problem they had was an issue over communion. Remember we talked about transubstantiation and how that the Catholic Church taught and I believe still teaches today that once the priest blesses the bread and the fruit of the vine, it literally turns into flesh and blood. Erasmus believed that. Martin Luther did not. And that was a that's one of the sacraments, so that was a huge huge thing to them. Erasmus said about Martin Luther, 
or no, Martin Luther said about Erasmus, he said, he's a viper, a liar, and the very mouth and organ of Satan. <laughs> so, I mean, he didn't have a high opinion of this guy after he wouldn't join in with his Reformation. But here's the guy who really started this Reformation. His name was Martin Luther. He nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church. Now, what this guy was is he was a priest. When he was young, he was terrified of thunderstorms. Have you ever been afraid of a thunderstorm, heard a big clap of thunder and it scared you? He had a friend who was killed by a bolt of lightning. And so he was terrified of thunderstorms. And one day he was caught in a thunderstorm and he cried out to God and he said, God, if you'll save me, I'll be a monk. And he lived through the storm. (laughs) So, true to his word, he became a monk. Broke his father's heart. He was a very brilliant man. His father wanted him to be a lawyer or a doctor or something. He became a monk. And he went to monastery and he began to study and read the Bible. And he was just tortured about his own sin. And he would do the sacraments. He would do the sacraments for people. But he just had constant agony in his own life over his own sin. And he found a passage of Scripture when he was reading in Romans where it said that Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And he came to the understanding, you know what? I don't need works of penance and I don't need purgatory. All I need is Jesus Christ. And he began to teach that. As you can imagine, that caused a lot of consternation, upset a lot of people. But the people in his church loved it. (laughs) I mean, the people in the church at Wittenberg, it was growing and lots of people were excited. People loved the idea that they just needed a relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus paid for their sins and they didn't have to go through purgatory and the penance and all the other things the Catholic Church put on people. So then John Tetzel comes to town. And John Tetzel is selling indulgences. And Martin Luther's people all go and they're all buying indulgences. And that's why they call him an angry German monk. He just got livid that his people were doing that. And so he went and wrote these 95 things that he nailed to the door of his church. And he was called then after the word got out that he had done this, he was called to appear before the Pope. He was called to appear before those who opposed him and those who were part of the religious organization at at the day. Now, he came to the idea that anything was okay as long as it wasn't specifically condemned by the Bible. Now, that's a little different than a guy we're going to look at here in just a minute. But when he was called before this group of men to decide whether or not he was a heretic, they laid his writings out in front of him. They talked about him. John Eck was the, the fellow who led it. And he and Eck had a debate. They debated for 18 days. And Eck said, How can you stand against indulgences when the Pope has said they're okay? And Martin Luther said, Who's the Pope? And he said, what do you mean who's the Pope? He's the head of the church. And Martin Luther said, the Bible doesn't say they're okay. And X said, what's the Bible? And Martin Luther says, what do you mean what's the Bible? And they ended up just in a big shouting match at the end of it. And and there was just a, a big ruckus. So he is called to give account for these beliefs. And they tell him, that he has 60 days to recant. And he stands before them very, very famous saying, and he says this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Do you believe that? Would you agree with that? They issued a death warrant for him for believing that. He goes and he writes a a pamphlet that's spread, that's printed and spread throughout all of Europe 
called the Babylonian captivity. And in the Babylonian captivity, he says this, the church, the Catholic church, doesn't uphold the church of God, it holds it captive. Well, the Catholic church responded with a pamphlet where they said, there is a wild boar loose in the kingdom of God, and it's Martin Luther. And so he responded by calling the Pope the Antichrist. And as you can imagine, things escalated quite quickly when that happened. Well, he finally is called before King Charles V, who is the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And he tells him, he looks at him and he says, you're a devil in monk's clothing. And Martin Luther stands and and refuses to recant his position. And so they tell him that he's got 60 days or he's going to die. And he leaves. He has a friend named Frederick of Saxony. And this guy kidnaps Martin Luther. They, and I guess they had this all set up because as he's leaving, masked men came and raided the group of people that he was with and kidnapped him and whisked him off to Frederick's castle to hide him. That's the only reason the Catholic Church didn't burn Martin Luther at the stake. And they held him captive, so to speak, but really they were hiding him. And he begins to write letters and write pamphlets and write books and arguments. And another thing he does is he begins to translate the New Testament out of Latin into German so the German people can read it. Now things are changing because, you know, when people start reading the Bible, they start seeing the lies that they've been told. They start seeing things that uh, God says and not just what was told before. And things really begin to change quickly. These questions that Martin Luther answered, that we talked about, it wasn't just Martin Luther but many others, they came to teach that salvation is by faith and not by the Catholic Church. They came to say that the authority is the Bible and not the Pope. They said the church was a group of people that you had to be born in again, or born again into, instead of one that you were born into by virtue of your citizenship in the Holy Roman Empire. And they taught that spiritual life was not mystical sacraments, but a personal relationship with Christ. Do you believe those things? I do. I mean, I believe those things are basically true, but they were very different answers. You know, to us, this is easy, right? To us, it's simple and easy to believe this. To them, it was very difficult. They had to climb through quite a briar patch of false doctrine that had been taught for many, many years. You see this picture. This is a statue that's in a Catholic church. And this is in this statue, there's Mary, and she's got the cross in this hand, and she's got a lightning bolt in this hand. And down here are Huss and Luther, and here's a little angel down here, and he's got the book of life in his hands, and he is tearing out the page that has the name of Martin Luther and John Huss, and they are being cast into hell. And this is a statue in a church. It still exists today. There was very, very serious hatred between these people. Now, let me show you right quick. I believe, in large measure, the new answers that were given to those questions. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Salvation is not by doing penance and going to purgatory and doing all the things that some man lays on you. Salvation is by our right relationship with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Not the Pope, not the bishop, but the word that I have spoken, which is the Bible. The Bible says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church is something that God adds people to. Saved people are the church. The church is not an organization apart from from Christians. It is the Christians. You are the church. This is not... We say let's go to the church, but I'll tell Carrie when I'm coming through Denton, yeah, I'm going to stop by the church and check this... 
And I just mean the building when I say that. The church is really the people. And finally, I think it's important to talk briefly about Martin Luther and faith. You know, Martin Luther is quoted all the time as saying that we are saved by faith alone. And he did say that. In the Latin, it was sola, or sola fide. That means faith alone. Only faith. And Martin Luther did say that we are saved by faith alone. But in the context of the world that he lived in, when he said you're saved by faith without works, he did not mean you're saved by faith without obeying God. He did not mean you're saved by faith without following the law of God. What he meant was you're saved by faith without doing all the things the Catholic Pope tells you to do. You're saved by Jesus and faith, not by the Catholic Church. And that's what Martin Luther taught. And to twist his words to mean that you can be saved without obeying God is a gross twisting of his words. He wrote books and articles against guys who are called antinomians. An antinomian is someone who says there is no law of God. You can just do what you want. And that's not true. He didn't believe that. He taught many things. I don't agree with near everything that He taught, but you know, Jesus Christ taught obedient faith. Jesus said, Not everyone that says to Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father which is in heaven. Martin Luther believed that. Just like you and I believe that today. The Apostle Paul said this, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. You can't just do whatever you want. Here's the issue that Martin Luther had. Money has nothing to do with being saved. And the Catholic Church taught it did. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Jesus said, your life doesn't consist of the things that you have. It doesn't matter if you're extremely wealthy or you're dirt poor. You can't buy your way out of sin. Which is what with the sale of indulgences they were trying to do, is buy their way out of sin. And the Catholic Church was teaching them that. Now a guy who was influenced by Erasmus and Martin Luther was this fellow named John Zwingli. Or it wasn't John, but I can't remember what his first... Ulrich Zwingli. That was it. This guy... When he was young, he kind of had a stain on his name. He had a child out of wedlock. But he did the honorable thing in raising that child. Uh, and he was converted. And he read the writings of Erasmus. And he began to change. He was deeply influenced by Erasmus. And he began to memorize the New Testament in Greek. Now, this guy lived in Switzerland. He didn't speak Greek naturally, but he learned Greek and memorized the New Testament in Greek. Can you imagine memorizing the New Testament in Greek? These guys studied. I mean, this guy was really convinced. Now, he and Martin Luther did not jive and they did not get along for one fundamental reason, and that was this. He rejected anything not authorized by the Bible. Martin Luther accepted anything not condemned by the Bible. Those are two very different approaches to the Bible. We still have people today who have both of those approaches. We may have some of both in this building right now. Martin Luther said, as long as the Bible doesn't condemn it, it's fine. Zwingli said, unless you can show me Jesus commanded it, it's wrong. And he got rid of all kinds of... He got rid of the the statues in churches. He got rid of all the icons. He got rid of instrumental music. There's even a lot of evidence that he may have even totally gotten rid of music where they didn't sing at all in the church. I mean, he had some very different things. But one thing that really stood out about this guy is he did something that had not been done in probably a thousand years in the visible church. Now, obviously there were Christians all along who were doing some of these things. But this guy is the first guy we have record of. He opened his Bible in front of his church and he began to teach them out of the book of Matthew. 
paragraph by paragraph by paragraph and teach them what the Bible actually said. You know, for a thousand years, that hadn't happened by any of the priests or preachers. Because see, Catholic priests aren't preachers. Catholic priests are administrators of the sacraments. They don't preach. They just administer the sacraments. It had been a thousand years, basically, since this had happened. You know, when people started reading the Bible, a couple of things happened. One, they shook loose themselves from the tyranny that had been the Catholic Church. But another thing happened, and that is, people began to learn different things out of the Bible. You know, I've been around here for quite a while. We've got elders Matt and Yancey. We all spend time discussing the Bible. We don't agree totally on everything in the Bible, do we? I mean, we've found things that we disagree about. Not huge fundamental doctrines, but you know, there'll be things I'll bring up and Yancey will go, oh, I never thought about that. You know, I kind of thought this. And Matt will say something, I'll go, well, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And, you know, as people begin to study the Bible, you had different people discovering and learning different things. The truth is, I said, I don't totally agree with them about everything. I don't totally agree with me five years ago about everything. My mind's changed about a lot of stuff I used to believe as I continue to study the Bible and learn more and more and more. That should be the path for all of us. There were a group of people who came upon something that was radically different. It was so radically different. They were persecuted by everyone. By the Lutherans, by the Catholics, and by the Zwinglies, and by everybody hated these guys. There was a guy named Conrad Grable, and he had the idea, he read in the Bible that baptism should be a result of faith in Christ and should not be something you did to children. Up to this point, everybody baptized their kids and had for a thousand years. Conrad Grable said adults should be baptized and adults only. And so you had all these people who were followers of his who began refusing to baptize their babies. Now this was a real problem because in modern thought of the day, the modern thought was this, when they're born, you get them baptized as quick as you can because that way they're under the authority of Christ and that way they won't be little heathens, they won't be little pagans. If what you're teaching, Conrad Grable, is true, then all these good Christian parents are giving birth to pagans and heathens. And we certainly can't have a whole nation full of pagans and heathens who have to obey the physical laws of the government, but not the spiritual laws of Christ. And they rounded him up and his followers, and they said, we give you one week to baptize all your children. Now, let me ask you a question. What if that was done to you? I mean, what if they came in here? Jeremy's got two kids. Your kid's been baptized, Jeremy? What if they came in here, the government, and said, Jeremy and Amber, you've got one week to baptize your kids or we're going to kill you. What do you do? I mean, it's easy right here, right now, for us to go, well, ain't no way I'd do it, you know. But what do you do? I mean, that's tough. These people met together in a barn, and there was a guy by the name of George Blue Rock. And as they talked about what to do, George Blue Rock stood up, and he said to Conrad Grable, he said, I want you to baptize me as an adult as a believer in Jesus Christ. That hadn't been done for hundreds of years. I'm sure Conrad Grable said, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> I mean, I, that, nobody was doing that. What they did is they went down to the river and they baptized first George Blue Rock and then all of the rest of the adults. And they refused to have their children baptized. And they ran. Now, they caught some of them. The very first one they caught was Felix Mance. And they told Felix Mance, they said, you like water so much, we'll give you some water. And they took him down and baptized him and held him under until the bubbles stopped. 
they went ahead to kill 5,000 people. They were called Anabaptists. The word Anna means re, rebaptized. Now, I've been in Nigeria and I have baptized or stood there while people were being baptized while other people were over on the shore mocking and screaming and laughing and making fun of the people being baptized. But nobody attacked us. We stand firm on baptism for remission of sins, don't we? But nobody's killing us. It was a challenging and difficult thing for them. Two of these guys are people you've heard of. You may not recognize their names, but you recognize the names of their followers. A guy named Menno Simmons. The Mennonites are his followers. And another guy named Jacob Ammon. The Amish are his followers. And these were early parts of the Anabaptist group. And so, when you read about some First Baptist church somewhere, you're reading about the people who are descendants of these kind of people. Now, the original Anabaptists were a whole lot more like the Amish. They were pacifists and they were uh, all lived together. They were communalists and all. But they did that for their own protection because they had to do that. They had to do that to live. The next guy of great importance is this guy, John Calvin. And John Calvin was converted by reading the works of Martin Luther. John Calvin was a brilliant man intellectually. He went to university when he was 16 years old. And John Calvin began to teach the things that he learned from Martin Luther's writings. And John Calvin began to study. And when he was 24 years old, he wrote a book called the Calvin's Institutes, and actually several volumes. And it laid out his doctrine, his belief. And he'd done a lot of reading in Augustine, and basically he just popularized a lot of Augustine's beliefs. He becomes religious dictator of Geneva. They take him, bring him to Geneva, and he wanted to be a scholar. He didn't want to be a a religious leader. He wanted to study and write books and things. And there was a preacher there in the area who was the lead preacher in in, uh, Geneva, and he asked John Calvin to stay and to work with him. And John Calvin said, no, I must go to my studies. And he said, cursed be your studies. We need your help here. And so John Calvin decides he's going to stay and, like I said, becomes a religious dictator of Geneva. Now, John Calvin was probably the most influential man of the Reformation. Almost every church in this town believes some of the doctrine of John Calvin. This big Denton Bible church down here, they're Calvinist church. Okay, They believe all five points of the Calvinism of this guy right here, his teaching. Um, his five points were total hereditary depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Basically, he taught that you don't have any free will. You're born corrupt. You don't have the ability to ever choose to do right. Any decision, any choice you ever make between good and evil is a excuse me, will be a choice for evil, naturally. That God has to do a supernatural work on you and change you supernaturally. You have nothing to do with it and you can never turn away. And if He decides to save you, He'll save you and you can't reject it. And if He decides to send you to hell, He's just going to send you to hell and you can't change it. And that's the fundamental belief system of Calvinism. Now, this guy, as political dictator and, excuse me, religious dictator of Geneva set up basically the same thing the Catholics tried to set up. A city that was ruled, a kingdom that was ruled by the Word of God. It was against the law in Geneva to dance. It was against the law in Geneva to gamble. It was against the law in Geneva to miss church. If you missed church, you were fined. In Geneva. That, that set the world on its ear, wouldn't it? I mean, he tried to enforce moral law on the people of Geneva. And he did a pretty effective job of it. Do you know one of the primary ways he did that? He excommunicated and even had killed people who disagreed with him. People who would not follow his teachings and would not bow to him as religious leader. One of his main opponents, probably the main opponent, was a guy named Jacob Arminius. He 
taught that man is created in God's image and thus he has free will to accept or reject the free gift of salvation. He taught that God offered salvation, He created us in His image, and we have the free will to accept that or reject it. Now, if you were to put me in one camp or the other, I would fall in the Arminian camp because I believe we have free will and God holds us responsible for the choices that we make. And that's the way this church believes and functions. There were about 30,000 people who left Europe because of this man. Henry VIII, he was a very vicious, immoral, rabidly Catholic guy. He wanted a divorce from his wife, and the Pope would not give him that divorce. So he said, okay, fine, I'm the new Pope of the church in England. And they called it, instead of the Catholic Church now, they called it the Church of England. The king was the head of the Church of England. He had been so rabidly Catholic that the Pope had called him the defender of the faith and given him that title as the defender of the faith. But he turned away from that. And he, like I said, he was a very wicked man. Very, very wicked man and did a lot of things. But he did give people an English Bible. uh had been translated by William Tyndale. And the people in England got that. The next guy I want to mention to you is this guy named John Wesley. John Wesley was a member of the Church of England which was this hybrid church that was kind of... It wasn't really Protestant, but it wasn't really uh, Catholic either. The Church of England was kind of a mix of, of in-between. They had some Protestant stuff, but they didn't recognize the Pope, but their services were very Catholic. One of the guys who was a member of that, a guy named John Wesley, was disturbed because there was a lot of ungodliness. People just did religion outwardly, and it didn't mean anything to them inwardly. And he and his brother Charles began to do a series of Bible studies with college students. And these Bible studies, they had a very specific method that they developed that they would use in this series of Bible studies. And they began to teach other people to do those studies. And they all followed this particular method. And it was just about being a good person and following God and living godly and all that. Well, people who believed this became known as Methodists because they followed the method of these guys. These guys both died as members of the Church of England. They didn't intend to start a new church. Martin Luther didn't intend to start a new church. Their idea was to reform the church that lived. Now, England had all... They they just went back and forth and back and forth between Protestant and Catholic. You probably heard of this lady right here. She was one of the daughters of King Henry VIII. They called her Bloody Mary because she was a rabid Catholic. And when she came to power, she executed every well-known Protestant she could find. Had them all killed. So they called her Bloody Mary. And when she did that, guess what? Most people went back to being Catholic. And when a Protestant would come up, most of them would go to being Protestant. Probably the most famous one she killed was the Archbishop of Canterbury, this guy right here, Thomas Cranmer. And he recanted his Protestantism. And then later he recanted his recantation of Protestantism. And so she caught him and had him burned at the stake. And as they were taking him to burn, I don't know if you can tell in this picture, but there he is, and here's his hand. Can you see his hand sticking out there in the flame? Thomas Cranmer, when they had him ready to burn, they offered him a piece of paper to sign recanting his Protestantism again. Now, he'd already done it once. And they offered it to him again. And when they did, he held out his right hand and he said, this is the hand which offends and it will burn first. And he just plunged his hand into the flame and let his hand burn. Because he had with that hand recanted and gone back to the Catholic Church. You know, these these are people that have some commitment to their beliefs, aren't they? After that, you had a lady named Queen Elizabeth who began colonization of America, and she was very moderate religiously. But she began sending people to America, and there were a group of people called the Puritans who came. There were a bunch of them that came. Started out with just a hundred or so at Plymouth Rock, 
But over the next few years, there were about 30,000 Puritans that came. There was a guy named King James. He was Protestant, but he enforced some Catholic traditions and he gave us what's called the King James Bible. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not this guy was homosexual or not. We don't really know. There's people that argue evidentially both ways. I don't really know, but I know this. He was very much Protestant in his belief system, but to satisfy the Catholics, he gave them publicly in their services religious Catholicism to follow. All the old icons and stuff. Can you imagine if you showed up at church next Sunday and I had a big statue of Mary sitting up here? And when you came to the door, the elders caught you at the door and gave you a candle and they said, before you can can go sit down, you have to go burn a candle to Mary for your sins. Would you stay? Probably not. (laughs) Well, that's kind of what happened here. And the Puritans were just totally, totally, totally done with this kind of back and forth in England. The Puritans followed the teaching of John Calvin. They were very strong Calvinists. So they decided they were going to go to America and they were going to set up a religious state in America that would be perfect. We'll get to that in just one second. We're almost done here. The problem between the Protestants and the Catholics got so bad that they had a religious civil war in Europe. They called it the Thirty Years' War, and it was the most bloody war ever fought in Europe until World War I. Lots of people died for their beliefs. The Protestants killed the Catholics, and the Catholics killed the Protestants. And they fought, and they fought, and they fought, and they fought. And finally, after 30 years, they got together at a place called Westphalia, and they said, you know what? They killed 35% of the population of Germany in this war. And they said, we're going to kill everybody. Let's just call a truce. And the Protestants keep the land they've got, and the Catholics keep the land they've got. So Northern Europe pretty much all became Protestant. Southern Europe remained Catholic. And this is the first time in history that religious tolerance was legislated. Now you might think back and go, well, wasn't there a a guy who had the edict of toleration back in the 300s? Well, that was, yes, that was the Romans tolerating Christians. But this is the first time that it was tolerated that Christians could have some difference of beliefs. And they all had their own name. There were the Presbyterians and there were the Puritans and there were the Lutherans and they all had their own name or nom and they started calling them denominations. And that's where the idea of denominationalism came from. That's why you've got all these different churches here. You know, the Puritans came to America, and guess what they decided they were going to do? They were going to do the same thing the Catholics did, same thing Constantine tried, the same thing that John Calvin tried in Geneva, and that is we're going to set the kingdom of God up here on this earth. And they strictly enforced all the laws, all their moral laws. And I know you've seen pictures of of people like this. They had all very strict laws and they had no tolerance, no toleration for anyone else except them. And if you weren't a good Puritan, you didn't get to own land, you didn't get to vote, you you had no rights if you weren't a good Puritan. This was ended. You know, people today sometimes have these kind of ideas. You know, we homeschooled. We were around lots of homeschooled people that kind of have the idea that, you know, if you can just lock your kids up and keep them away from rock and roll and devil TV and all that stuff and not let them go to those evil schools, man, they'll turn out righteous and they'll turn out... And it doesn't always work that way. It just doesn't. And there were some teenagers, teenage girls, who got around a Haitian slave that taught them voodoo. They lived in the town of Salem. And they began to accuse people in Salem of being witches. And over a few years there in Salem, they accused 200 people of being witches. Of those 200 people, about 20 of them were killed, hung for being witches, and two dogs. (laughs) They killed two dogs for being witches also. They became such a laughing stock in the world for their 
their ignorance that that was the end of this idea of the city of God, that there could be a physical kingdom in this world and this grand experiment failed totally. Evangelical Christianity is their heritage here in the United States. Now, the Reformation hits the shores of America and the Reformation begins to spread. As the frontier spreads, so do the religious convictions and the division from Europe came over here to all... Each colony had its own state religion originally. They all had their religions uh, unless you were a rogue and then they sent you to Rogue Island, which we call Rhode Island today. And those were the people who didn't really have any religion that were sent there. And they all had their different belief systems and that was enforced by the state. But as this idea of freedom spread through America... It went west as the frontier went and all these different ideas went west and you end up with Catholics and Lutherans and Amish and all... By 1800, there were 125 distinct denominations here on the shores of the United States. There's a picture of what we've gone through. From there all the way through and right here, we're at the division that spread to America. The next time, we're going to talk about uh, how some of this really started in a, a movement in the world that, that changed Christianity in a very fundamental way, that changed the way you and I specifically see and believe and understand our Christianity. I hope you've been encouraged by learning some of these things. You know, all these guys... I told you, I think, last time that I studied with a young man one time and I told him, if you go to heaven, it'll be in spite of John Calvin and Martin Luther and not because of them. And I was real, you know, when I was young. I don't know what I'd do in some of these situations. I like to think that I'd stand there like Jeremy shook his head, no, and I, you know, I'd stand up for what was right. I hope I would. But it's hard to know what you'd do in some of those difficult situations. But even though they did some noble and good things... They were men just like everyone else. They did bad stuff. They did terrible things. There are many stories about things that Martin Luther did. He he believed that they ought to take all of the Jewish property and run all the Jews out. He hated Jews, thought it was fine to kill Jews anywhere they got. I mean, these guys were not perfect men. But what they were doing is they were struggling under spiritual bondage and they, they allowed the world to have the Bible. And that's the tremendous value to us today. If you have some spiritual need, that's the real reason we're here is spiritual purposes. We do offer a song of invitation if you'll make that need known while we stand and sing.